This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other have lived? We'll see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me? This is Wade Brasky, and you're listening to Wade's World, the voice of the people program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's world, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Kampala, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay. Points east and west where we are either rebroadcast or live streamed at kbf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available of the show on these websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world, and today we're talking to Professor Natasha Waraku, who's written a book, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. Professor, welcome to Wage World. Great to be here, Wade. Well, it was fascinating for me to read your book. I have to disclose in the beginning that a million years ago, I went to uh, a high school in New Orleans, which was... uh, uh, fostered this uh, same sort of program of meritocracy. You had to test in and everything else. And watching what's happened at that high school uh, was interesting as you read your book. But you sort of embedded yourself in this community, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I really wanted to get a 360 view of just what was going on from the perspective of kids of adults, of people, other community leaders, um, and across the different um, racial and ethnic groups as well. So um, spent a lot of time there, talked to different people, um, went to a lot of community events, you know, hung out at the school, school events, talked to school administrators and teachers, um, and that's what I did. Well, and you got a pretty uh, interesting, uh, you, you came into all sides, let's say. Um, I mean, part of, uh, you might just tell us sort of uh, how you sort of started coming to some conclusions after such uh, detailed field work. Yeah, so I, you know, when I um, started this project, I was interested in trying to understand these two kind of big trends that I was noticing at the national level. One is that we, the Asian Americans are the most rapidly growing um, racial group in the United States today. The population has almost doubled in the last two decades. And um, that has been happening alongside um, uh, uh, Asian Americans doing well academically. And that issue comes up in a variety of places. So, you know, and this is in part because um, the way that a lot of Asian Americans end up being able to come to the United States is through the highly skilled visa program. And so particularly um, immigrants from India and China are more likely to be coming from, you know, this having gone to college in India and China and, um, and bringing those skills to the United States. And so, um, and then they're able to impart a lot of that, their resources to help their children do well as well. And so this leads to these patterns where, we see Asian Americans in some domains doing better even than that, you know, what's the sort of 
status quo group, white, you know, the white upper middle class. And so I wanted to understand, look at one community and where, you know, that's an, that's an upper income community where you have highly skilled immigrants coming in large numbers and try to understand what happens, um, what happens at the school level? How does the community shift? How do people respond to these patterns? Um, and so, so this is what I did. And I really, you know, I found that they, on the one hand, there's a lot of appreciation for di growing diversity, um, you know, among, uh, the kind of white population, you know, like they, they, they like that they have a, um, divert, live in a diverse community. It's not all white, even though they live in a well-off suburb. And among, you know, the immigrants, they appreciate being in a place where there are people like them on the one hand. On the other hand, there were some tensions around, parenting what does it mean to be a good parent what's the right way to help my child get ahead to get our, help our children get ahead is it fair to do certain things to hire you know uh, private tutors or coaches um etc well one of the points that uh, it's hard to avoid in reading your book is sometimes these claims of how much they like diversity don't sort of um, convince themselves in uh, reality quite as much yeah, you know, I think um, what we know from, you know, uh, previous studies as well is that, you know, there can be a very shallow um, appreciation for diversity, right? Uh, you know, we might say, oh, we love diversity. We like having, you know, our kids not be in school with other kids. But when that diversity challenges us and people do things differently, you know, parents behave differently or um, have different ideas about what the school should be doing, that's when, you know, we're really forced to say, well, diversity is not just like, um, you know, what, what some people call heroes and holidays, I'm learning about heroes and then, you know, having an international potluck, it really means um, rethinking like, you know, well, you know, in, in this community, for example, some of the white parents got upset that a lot of uh, Asian parents sent their children to extracurricular math classes. So, you know, and, and it kind of got to a situation where most kids placed in honors math had been in these extracurricular math classes, right? Because which kind of makes sense, you get a little more advanced. And so then, you know, uh, what it takes to get into honors math kind of shifts. And they felt like this was not fair. And this was sort of a detriment to their own children who they felt should be in honors math, but couldn't be now because of these changes. And so it led to some of these tensions. And they said, well, they shouldn't be doing that rather than, well, okay, that's how they do things. I could choose to put my child in that class, or I could just say, well, that's not for us. And, you know, this is the community is changing and that's okay. Um, but there, it did lead to some of these tensions and some of the Asian parents were like, well, you know, um, yeah, I see that, but my kid can't get onto the, you know, even the JV baseball team if they don't, you know, play club baseball and hire a private coach. And so it's kind of the same thing. So that's how that was their perspective. So these are some of the tensions that, that arose. And in uh, China and India, and I know, uh, we work in India, uh, there's a lot of emphasis, uh, particularly in some classes, about huge amounts of study and expectations on testing uh, that are different than perhaps the American cultural norm. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, I always say that it's not that 
that Asian parents value education any more than anybody else, whether it's white parents, black parents, Latinx parents. It's just that they um, are coming from a national context in which in order to get ahead, you have to, you know, ace these national exams. And so in India and China in particular, these were the two largest groups. They're actually the two largest sending um, countries of immigrants to the United States today. Um, they, uh, so the parents who are in this community, because most of them have come from the highly skilled visa program, they did quite well academically in Asia. And how do you do well academically in Asia? You have to go after school. It's kind of a routine. It's standard that you go to these extracurricular either classes or tutoring to prepare. And this is for years for the national exam because that is the only determinant of where you're going to go to college. And so that's the norm. And they bring that kind of what I call a cultural repertoire to the United States. And they impart that on their children. And they really focus on the academics because that's what they know and that's what they sort of intuitively understand is the most important thing. Whereas um, parents from the United States, and they were these were mostly uh, white parents in this community, they grew up in a context in which college admissions is much more holistic. Yeah, you've got to be, you know, for selective colleges. Yeah, you've got to be a strong student academically, but you also need extracurriculars, right? You also need, you know, strength in a particular, you know, whether it's a sport or music or theater, you need to have something that you shine in. And they kind of understood that intuitively. Not that the Asian American parents didn't know that, you know, they were very aware that American college admissions was different than it is in Asia, but there was just a different focus, right? So the American parents might, uh, many of them said, you know, we told our kids, you can only take one AP class a semester because you're going to be busy with your sports or with your seat. You know, when production time comes, you're going to be spending so many hours uh, on the theater. You're not going to have time to be doing these multiple extra um, academics, uh, sorry, honors classes. Whereas some of the Asian parents were like, you know, I told my kids, can you just quit this? You know, the soccer team, it's just too much, too many hours or a swim team or what have you. And they were kind of like, they were trying to convince their children to quit sports. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Some kids did tell me, you know, it was just too much. I played in middle school and then I quit in high school because I didn't have time. And so, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, but parents have different ideas about um, what limitations, like what kids should limit in order to do everything they needed to do and get enough sleep. We're talking to Professor Natasha Warku about her book, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. We see the same issue start to play out when the end goal is uh, what kind of college or university they get into at the end of this process. And certainly the litigation at Harvard among Asian Americans about whether or not there's a quota. This is all fitting into the, that same context, isn't it, Professor? Yeah, it's very it's very similar connected to this trial that's going to happen um, this year. And, you know, um, it's interesting because I think on the one hand, you know, I, I see the way that Edward Blum, who's the man behind this law, these lawsuits, uh, it's really a kind of anti-racial justice uh, warrior, <laughs> I might. You know, uh, no, no. He's not a character you can line up behind. No, no. And, you know, he's behind the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. He exactly. was behind the last case, um, uh, anti-affirmative action case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court where there was a white plaintiff. So it's pretty clear, you know, he's not really interested in racial discrimination. In fact, his whole kind of life work seems to be um, working towards uh, eliminating policies that try to address racial exclusion. And so, you know, it's 
I find it hard to believe that he really, if he really cared about, you know, anti-Asian discrimination, which exists, he would look at, you know, um, you know, attacks in public. He would look at, you know, work on bullying in schools. He would look at the corporate workplace where there's evidence of like bamboo ceilings for Asian Americans. He wouldn't be looking at college admissions. You know, Harvard, which is the, one of the two cases it's going to be in the Supreme Court, um, there, uh, there's a pretty robust, I think it's 20 to 25 percent of U.S. undergraduates at Harvard are Asian American. And, you know, around uh, 8 percent of young people are Asian American. And so and that's not to say that that, that, that that automatically means there's no racial discrimination towards Asian Americans. But the evidence suggests that there are other things going on. But I think what he's captured is this sort of this difference in what families are emphasizing. So, um, you know, Asian Americans do tend to do better on the SAT than every other racial group, including whites, um, in part because that's the focus. And um, and so, but those are, that's not what Harvard is doing in their admissions, right? They're looking at a whole host of things when they do admissions. Um, and this is really a very thinly veiled attack on affirmative action. But these are two separate issues, even if there was any anti-Asian discrimination in college admissions, which I, you know, I, I don't think, from what I see, I don't think there is. That is a very different issue than whether or not we should have, we should be, be considering race for African-Americans, Native Americans, and Latinx uh, young people uh, in college admissions. I mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, I went to a, a public high school in New Orleans where you had to test in with a certain achievement and IQ and all that. That yeah. same school now is... Uh, has a problem in New Orleans, which is the public school um, demographic is heavily uh, African-American because so is our population in the city. Um, the percentage of Asian-Americans in that particular high school is now almost equivalent to whites in a system that is very largely black. And how you make sure that you have real diversity from black uh, African-Americans in New Orleans in that school continues to be a issue before the public school board and an issue in that particular high school. These are very important and interesting issues right now, Professor, aren't they? Absolutely. And we see the same thing happening at the exam schools in New York City and Virginia. Yeah, I was yeah. yeah, all over the country. And I think, you know, again, I want to emphasize this sort of pitting people of color against each other to say that, you know, making room for groups that have been historically really excluded, almost, you know, completely excluded from these exam schools, from these elite schools is, you know, that is a very different issue um, than, you know, and, and Asian Americans have to recognize that um, we have, you know, in, in many ways benefited from some of these policies that have been designed to exclude African Americans. And it's our responsibility to be, you know, line up behind these, uh, these, these policies that promote racial justice. Um, and that is in the interest of all of us. Um, and, you know, people, I really feel strongly that people of color need to be aligned on these issues and really be, you know, thinking about we can have um, inclusive policies that really give children all over the city of all racial backgrounds a shot at these elite schools and take the top students um, from all of these groups um, to these schools and not have discrimination towards Asian Americans. Right. And, you know, Asian Americans and whites, you know, there's no reason to favor whites over Asian Americans because there's no bit, there's not been any historical exclusion, but there has been his, historical exclusion of African Americans in particular. Um, and we have to recognize that. 
one of the interesting things, and obviously a straight line through your book, is the fact that as Asian Americans have done so much better in some of the academic uh, pursuits and are besting, uh, certainly rivaling, but in many cases besting whites, white parents are changing and changing the arguments they make about uh, the meritocracy and about these very kinds of uh, elite schools, either exam schools or schools where, I mean, as you point out in your book, in this, uh, I assume this is not the real name of this town. I know that's the case, but uh, people move to the town for the quality of the schools, right? That's right. Yeah. So many of the parents that I met, one of the first questions I asked them was like, how did you end up living here? And the, the majority had moved there um, primarily for the schools or, you know, if it wasn't just that town, they said, well, we were thinking of this town or this town um, because we want because of the school system. There's this idea that the schools are, quote unquote, better. Um, and so um, but when, you know, Asian Americans go and do the same thing, then it, then somehow it, they feel a little like, well, they're just coming here for the schools or they're, they're like making it too competitive here. And so there was this, there was a little bit of, you know, sometimes I was a little puzzled, like, you know, well, is that what you said that you did? Um, but I think there was again, um, this slight, this anxiety about how the community was changing. Um, and I think again, it's important to, to pay attention to the fact that these kinds of, you know, academic testing, you know, we know that in the, the history of the SAT is lined, is aligned with the history of intelligence testing, which was started by like a bunch of eugenicists. Like the history of this testing is, very racist, right? And that it was designed to supposedly prove the superiority of whites over all races, including Asians and African-Americans. And so um, when we think about that history and then, you know, and that they, they're designed to racially exclude, and then Asian-Americans are able to sort of come in and, you know, use them to get ahead. And um, and also when we think about communities, like I call, the, I call the town Woodcrest, you're right, that's a pseudonym, that they are were also designed as suburbs for for what but at that time whites to leave the city and you know get away from working class people african americans um leave, live in these segregated places and again asian americans because they're coming with high skills and then they get high incomes are able to move into these towns um that were designed to racially exclude so it's this kind of ironic twist and, and i think we have to recognize that history and you know when we recognize that advocate for you know um opportunities more opportunities for african-american youth as well well, but the point as well, the, the paradox is that many of the families were arguing how much they, well, and in general, uh, upper class whites have argued how they like these competitive schools until they start losing the competition. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's a, there's a, an interesting study that was done a while ago, um, about 10 years ago, um, by a guy named Frank Sampson. He was, a, at the time, he was a graduate student at UCLA, and he did this. Um, he's a social psychologist. He did this um, experiment where he prime, he had a bunch of um, white um, whites come into the lab and and primed that some of them. In the first half, he said, "You know, um, Asian Americans tend to have higher GPAs than whites. Um, and how important do you think GPA should be in college admissions?" And um, then they say, "Well, it's not that important." And then the next in the next um, setting, they said, "Well." Uh, whites tend to have higher GPAs than African-Americans. Um, how important do you think GPA should be in college admissions? And then they say, well, it should be quite high. And so yeah. 
you know, and we all do this, right? This is not just um, whites or, you know, that we favor the domains that we see are that, that that help us shine, right? And we think that those are more important. Um, and so it's true that our ideas about merit and who's deserving do shift according to, you know, what domain, um, you know, privileges our, our own group. Exactly. We're talking to Professor Natasha Waraku, who's written a book, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. It couldn't be more timely, though, um, as the headlines recently were talking about a dispute about homework. And yeah. homework turns out to be one of the more contentious issues that you found uh, as you embedded in this community. That's right. Yeah. When I um, when I started this research, one of the things that um, I, I didn't expect was that the community was already at that time, this was about um, six years ago, was really thinking hard about mental health. And they were trying to figure out ways to reduce stress among their students. And one of the, they had already, so, so one, uh, one of the things that they did was they tried to reduce academic competition. They had already eliminated class, they, don't, they didn't announce class rank or a valedictorian. Um, and one of the things that they were, had piloted when I started was this new homework policy where one elementary school was going to eliminate homework and at the, at the older, with the older kids, there, were, there would be limits about when teachers could assign homework, how much. Um, and then they eventually sort of codified that and, and made it permanent. And it was interesting to talk to parents about how they felt about this homework policy. Um, because, you know, many of the white parents thought this was a good thing. Some of them had, that I met had actually advocated for the policy. One mom told me about how she went to complain to the, the principal when her son was in middle school about how there was too much homework. Her son was crying. And the principal told her, some parents are telling me there's not enough homework. Um, but when I talked to some of the Asian parents, um, they were like, I don't get it. I don't understand why they're doing that. And I don't agree with it. Like, you need homework to practice. And, um, you know, and also, like, you know, this. I remember this one Indian mom said to me, as if she was talking to a white parent, like, your kid is out doing all their extracurriculars till 9 o'clock, and then they have to come home and do their homework, and so they're stressed. My kid is not doing that, so my kid is not stressed. So why are you trying to limit my kid's homework? Everybody should, you know, basically individual families should decide how many honors classes, how much to take on, rather than the school limiting these things. And so they had different perspectives on what this, how the school should address the kid's emotional well-being and stress and how much, you know, homework, you know, whether or not homework should be part of that. But this is also about trying to level down the level of competition, right? That's right, yeah. And yeah. Basically, if homework was helping Asian Americans and others, then many of these largely white parents kind of wanted less of it. Uh, they wanted okay. to make sports more important. I mean, it was, um, there was rich irony in this position, and that's becoming a position we read about more, not just in where you were studying in an upper-class community, but uh, at more largely throughout society, we're reading about this now, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, it's, uh, it's there, there are slightly different things at play here, but it is, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, in the past, I think the sort of some of the dominant narratives have been that, well, you know, African-American parents supposedly 
don't care about school. We know that that's not true from all of the qualitative research and survey research, you know, and aren't kind of focused on um, getting their kids to do their homework. And then, you know, and that was wrong and that was bad. And now it's like Asian Americans are too focused on academics and that's also bad, right? So like the, the normative is always sort of what whites are doing. And I think that's, that's pro- you know, and how they're doing it, right? And I think that's problematic. Um, but the homework issue, I know it's been in the press um, recently about um, whether to give homework, you know, how much it privileges um, advantaged families. And we do know, you know, homework that needs, the help of parents can be problematic because some parents have more skills than others and have more time or are more available or are more able to help their kids for a variety of reasons than others. And that can lead to inequality in, you know, the grades kids get for homework and, you know, how teachers see them, whether the teacher sees them as working uh, hard working or not. Um, and are there opportunities at the school for kids to get homework help at the school rather than having to take it home and, you know, they may not have a quiet place to work or a parent who could help them when they're struggling. Um, and I think some of these issues arise. And so that's a, it's a slightly different kind of issue. But homework, you know, I think I, I, I was reading about this um, as I was doing this research and I found like, you know, 100 years ago, there were these debates about whether school, whether or not school should be giving homework. So, you know, it's been a long time we've been, that we've been talking about homework. Well, and, you know, look, having gone through one of these schools, it's hard to be an advocate of homework. Uh, but, I mean, <laughs> but it's part of the process. Um, one of the things that I was interested in is clearly that you hear this slogan, uh, uh, increasingly about people checking their privilege and coming to grips with the fact that they have certain privileges. In reading your book, I didn't find a whole lot of uh, really deep recognition of people understanding the privileges they had. Uh, was I missing something or did you not see that as well? No, I think you're right about that. And I think that part of the problem is that the community is this you know, it's very, it's a, and this is not just this community. This is all over the country. We live in such segregated environments, both racially and by class and increasingly by political view as well, that, you know, this community, there's kids are surrounded by peers um, whose parents are college graduates, not just college graduates, graduates of like very elite colleges um, who are professionals, high paid professionals. And they kind of, kind of seems like the norm. Like that's what quote unquote everybody is. And you know, one third of Americans has a bachelor's degree. That's not the norm. The norm is not to have a college degree. And so, um, and then it's hard. And then there are some of these tensions within the town. And so, it's hard to recognize that, you know what, we're, that's, why I, I talk, that's why I call it a race at the top. It feels very competitive. But actually, everybody's getting a medal. Everybody is going to, not everybody, but most people in this community, because of all the resources they're growing up with, are going to be just fine. Um, and I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. Now, I will say that, you know, around the time I was, you know, winding down this research, um, June 2020, um, there was a sort of uh, recognition of Black Lives Matter movement, um, a lot of BLM signs on people's lawns. And then pretty soon after that, after the shootings in Atlanta, Stop Asian Hate signs went up. So people kind of recognize these issues at a kind of glo- like larger level. But I 
sometimes I worry that that doesn't necessarily translate to the local community and the recognition in the community of, you know what? Yeah, we do things differently. Um, you know, it's so competitive that because my son hasn't been playing baseball since he was three and I don't even know how to play baseball because I'm from a country where we play cricket. Um, my kid is going to be just fine. It's just fine. And, you know, just because my kid didn't go to the Kumon class and isn't in honors, he's she's also going to be fine. And so I think there isn't that same recognition. And, you know, we are very we're all privileged. You know, even if we're an immigrant family, we are privileged because of the income and educational assets that we have. I've, uh, I've watched hours of cricket with our organizers in India and I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, continue to fail to understand. Uh, so it's one of those things where I know it's happening, but I, I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I have enough sense not to embarrass myself. We've been talking to Professor Natasha Waraku about her book, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. How can people get a hold of this book, uh, Professor, uh, and continue this conversation? Yeah, they can get it at the University of Chicago Press website. Um, they can get it at bookshop.org, which uh, supports local independent bookstores. They can get it on Amazon or their local independent bookstore as well. Um, any, uh, you should be able to find it in any of those places. And if they uh, have uh, questions or want to continue the dialogue with you, is there a website or an email or anything where they can uh, uh, ask questions about the book or what your work has been? Absolutely. My website is www.natashawariku.com. And I'll spell my last name because I know it's unusual. It's W-A-R-I-K-O-O.com. Or you can email me, natasha.wariku at tufts.edu. Love to hear from people. Okay, thank you so much. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard, and as Lucinda Williams sings, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rathke from Wage World.